broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing. Get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello, everyone. This is Heidi Keeler, your host for RN Huddle, coming to you live from the College of Nursing at UNMC in Omaha, Nebraska. And today is a very special day because it is Worldwide Pressure Injury Prevention Day. That's right. Thursday, November 21st, 2019 is Worldwide Pressure Injury Prevention Day. And so what better discussion to have today but to talk about the pressure injury guidelines from one of the authors herself, Dr. Janet Cudigan, who is faculty here at the College of Nursing at UNMC and also happens to be the president of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, the organization that writes the guidelines for identifying and managing pressure injuries. So very, very special guest with us today. And Conversing with her today is Renee Pollan. She is a nurse planner in the College of Nursing here in Continuing Nursing Education Office, and she herself is a WOCN. So we're going to talk about the new clinical practice guidelines for prevention and treatment of pressure injuries and talk about what's changed, why it's important, and all things nursing. Ladies? We are very excited to have Dr. Janet Cuttingen here with us today on Worldwide Pressure Injury Prevention Day. She is the president of the National Pressure Injury Advisory Panel, or NPIAP, in which they recently released the new clinical practice guideline for prevention and treatment of pressure injuries. As a certified wound ostomy continence nurse myself, I am well aware how important this new guideline is for multiple healthcare settings. I know you have been working hard uh, over the years to bring updated evidence-based practice guidelines and recommendations to the forefront. Now, the last guideline was last updated in 2014, established by the NPUAP, or now called NPIAP. But now there was a new international collaboration for 2019. Tell us a little bit about this collaboration, who was involved in the development, and uh, what brought everyone together. The international collaboration involved, as you said, the NPIAP, and then we had two major partners. One was the European Pressure Ulcer Advisory Panel, and the other was the Pan-Pacific Pressure Injury Alliance, and and sometimes we call them the triple PIA, you know, sort of a Western, you know, kind kind of flavor. They don't understand it. They're Australian. But anyway, we call them the PPPIA. We've done three guidelines, 2009. 2014 and now 2019. And what we added in 2019 was we also had uh, 14 different associate organizations that are interested in wound care, like WCET. Some of our listeners may be familiar with that group. Now, how were these guidelines determined amongst all these groups? Well, we had a common methodology, and we started with clinical questions. And the clinical questions were designed, basically, how do I do a better job of preventing pressure injuries or how do I do a better job of treating uh, pressure injuries? And based on those questions, for example, a question might be, could I really pick up an early deep tissue pressure injury if I used ultrasound or subepidermal moisture or thermography? And then we investigated the research and looked at the research to see if there was enough evidence there to make a recommendation. 
Now, I'm just curious, when collaborating with internationally, was there any differences in their guidelines, their past guidelines compared to ours? And um, how did you come about with that? You know, we were the only ones who really had past guidelines. The Americans had um, produced the AHRQ and some of your older listeners will remember the little purple books. They wanted to join us because we had the guideline experience. What we found in meeting every month was everybody had a little bit different approach. And what we were trying to do was say, what does the research evidence really tell us we should do? But it was just really a rich discussion about different approaches, especially in the absence of uh, evidence, you know, about how people handle different problems. Like they were shocked that occasionally we still use gauze, you know, like a moist, moist gauze because they had bought into advanced wound care dressings long ago and they, th- they thought it was barbaric to use gauze. So will we be seeing a change in the use of gauze versus these more advanced therapies in these guidelines? Well, the recommendation is for the more advanced dressings. It is. You know, some of the foams and some of the composite dressings. But we still recommend uh, moist, continuously moist gauze for wound healing in low-resource countries where you, where you can't get an advanced wound dressing. Okay. So we tried to look at all different areas of the world and truly make it internationally. If you have this, use it. If you can't afford it or it's not available, here are realistic options. There's even some information from the World Health Organization about how you'd use banana leaves to uh, as a as a dressing if you don't have gauze or an advanced mm-hmm. wound care it's really interesting what people come up with yeah that would be very interesting now how does this new guideline compare to the old MPUAP guidelines and recommendations um i think a lot of the changes are based on you know the the newer research so there are a couple of areas where we where we saw big changes I think one I've mentioned before, is there a better way that we can assess early tissue damage, you know, before it becomes a big problem, especially we all have trouble with deep tissue pressure injury, especially in dark-skinned individuals, catching it early and assessing it. And there's some new technologies in relation to that. I think there's some technologies for treatment that we sort of know about, and the research says they're really effective, but we don't use very often. Like there's really solid information on electrical stimulation. We use a lot of negative pressure wound therapy, but we don't use as much electrical stimulation. There's also a really nice chapter on infection. And we've all heard of biofilms, but there's some new evidence on if you suspect there's a biofilm or if you have the fancy electron microscopy to really find out you do have a biofilm, what you should do about it. And it's basically debriding it and then antiseptics afterwards to keep it from regrowing. But there's some real definite protocols on how to do that. And that will be included? That's included in the guideline, yes. Okay. Now, when we speak about guidelines versus recommendations, what is the difference? Because I know one's based on evidence-based practice and then recommendations. Is that um, well, We have kind of have three categories. The guideline is, is the whole enchilada, the whole whole big book. And we break it down into three different categories. One is something called a good practice statement. It's something we all know and all do, and it's logical and realistic, and nobody's going to do a randomized control trial to prove it. Like, you, you probably should cleanse a wound. You don't get right. the smuts out and 
you know, clean it up clean if you it. want it to heal. So they're good practice statements. And then when we looked at the research, if there was enough evidence to make an evidence-based recommendation, we made an evidence-based recommendation. So for example, it might be use negative pressure wound therapy in stage three and four, pressure injuries to increase granulation, and allow for re-epithelialization. We, we're not quite that wordy, but we accompany that with what research studies actually showed that it does have a positive effect. And then uh, we also surveyed clinicians and asked, you know, what do you think? Do you think you'd use it on your patients? Would it do more good than harm? Would you really use it? Do you think it's important? And then the other of the three categories are their implementation considerations. So you can think of the recommendations are, this is what you should do based on the research, and implementation considerations are, well, how do you do it? And mm-hmm. is there any special nuance for a different population? So we need to reposition people. There's evidence that shows that. But maybe it's a little bit different in ICU when somebody's hemodynamically unstable. So an implementation consideration might be, well, small shifts may help in addition to turning or turn slowly and allow somebody to sort of equilibrate or readjust their SATs and their pressures. Now, with when speaking of this guideline for the listeners, what would you say is one of the major new pressure injury prevention strategies or treatments that really stands out overall? Was there a great change all throughout, or was there anything that stands out majorly that the listener should be aware of? Um, I think there are three things that stand out in my mind on how we, we approach prevention. We did this comprehensive review in the literature and the epidemiology and and risk. And obviously, being immobile stands out. But also, diabetes came out as a really strong risk factor. So I'd key in on those patients. Uh, Something that they're doing in Europe that's a little different, we always do a comprehensive risk assessment like a Braden or a Norton or something. What they're saying is in Europe is, It may take you a while to get around to a comprehensive assessment, so why don't you kind of screen the patient when they come in, and you kind of know if they're immobile, those are the people you focus on. And the example they give is if you're an ED nurse and you've got an 18-year-old kid with a cut finger and you've got a 85-year-old who just fractured their hip, you know right away screening who's more likely to get a pressure injury. And it's the Mm 85-year-old lady that you should do the Braden scale and look at other additional risk factors on. You know, the kid's going to be out the door in two hours. But do an initial screening on who you really have to focus on. And not everybody necessarily needs a Braden. And not everybody needs a full skin assessment. Really focus in on who's likely to be at risk. And that'll save us some time. I mentioned, you know, that there's some new strategies like thermography and subepidermal moisture that tells you when there's kind of early tissue damage, and I think that's important for prevention. I think we all grew up with turn every two hours, but it's a little more complicated than that. It depends on what, if you have a really good surface, you might not need to turn quite as often. How high of a risk is the patient? And should we be really waking people up every two hours, you know, to to turn them? 
So sort of an individualized approach. And to support the individualized approach, there's some new therapies like a motion detector that gives you feedback on, well, this patient just turned themselves in the middle of sleep. Don't wake them up now. Or a pressure mapping system that says, well, this is a hot spot where they really have a lot of pressure. Maybe you can do a better job positioning. So there's some technologies that help us do something more blunt than turn everybody every two hours. Well, I think that will be really helpful because I know just from my own practice, you know, and others worried about patients not wanting to be turned in the middle of the night. And I think that will help, uh, it sounds like, with facilities determining whether to leave them alone or if we can go in there dependent on that patient. Yeah, anybody that's been a night nurse, you just hate to... Wake up somebody up. that's finally settled exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that will help clear, hopefully, the questions about that. So that's great. Now, did the guidelines, um, was there any adjustment on the issue of multiple comorbidities, you know, with patient and respiratory failure? Like you said, you know, the issue of diabetes and, and how that impacts uh, pressure injuries and avoidable versus non-avoidable pressure injuries? Well, the risk factor chapter is real interesting because it kind of lines up what are the strongest risk factors in mobility as top. It also looks at different populations. So like in critical care, risk factor is probably vasopressors and being on a ventilator. We didn't look so much at the uh, comorbidities. We didn't discuss as a guideline group unavoidable, but NPIAP is doing a lot of work on that. And we have a conference in Houston February 27th and 28th, it's going to go a lot more into unavoidable. You know, we've always sort of had this expectation that we have to get down to zero pressure injuries. But what NPIP is saying now is zero avoidable. You can't prevent them all. You can't. Some are clearly unavoidable. You don't know up front that this person's going to have an unavoidable. You still have to try. But we're trying to clarify the criteria and there's some new studies out that that have criteria that after the fact, when you do your root cause analysis, you did everything in your power. You did everything the guidelines said, everything you know to help this patient, and they still happened. Those should be determined unavoidable, and you shouldn't have the reimbursement penalties and the quality improvement penalties that are associated with that. And we're working towards that. And I know that's been a difficult um, issue, too, because you still need a document, but you don't always know until later on whether it was a, you Right. Know. You can't say a priori. Right. You know, there are plenty of people with really, really high risk mm-hmm. that you think they'll probably get a pressure injury, but you still have to present. And then we've all had patients where, you know, I'm an ICU nurse, so maybe they've got five pressors, they've got ECMO, they're on a ventilator, they've coded three times, and lo and behold, I can't believe that person didn't get a pressure injury. What's the difference? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's mind-boggling at you times. Still, you still have to try, but in the end, when you've tried, you shouldn't be penalized. Do you see that these, uh, this guideline then, you know, will impact pressure injury reporting and or decrease pressure injury rates? Well, our hope is it'll decrease pressure injury rates. You know, if people know more of the right evidence-based things to do and have some guidance on uh, how to implement the guideline. We do have a chapter in there on uh, how to do a prevalence incidence facility-acquired rates. 
I think we're all used to NDNQI's strategy for that, and that is still very, very sound. But sometimes we mix up the terms, you know, prevalence, incidence, Mm -hmm. facility acquired, and we tried to provide more clarity on that. So will these guidelines or recommendations be helpful for developing or revising facility policies related to pressure injuries? I hope so. (laughs) That's, That's the intent. And one of the documents we're working on now at NPIAP is, okay, you've got a protocol on pressure injury prevention. Here are the five new things. Look at your protocol and see if you want to add it or change it or finesse it a little bit to include it. So I see there's a quick reference guide, and then there's the manual that you can purchase. That's more in-depth, correct? Right. What is the difference in how do individuals or organizations decide which one to refer to? Or My recommendation is to get the quick reference guide. It's, it's just the recommendations. And that can actually be downloaded for free from the NPIAP website, which is still npuap.org or npiap.com. So I'd start with just the recommendations and then the big clinical practice guideline I'd kind of use for a crosswalk. So a recommendation that didn't quite make sense to me or I wonder how did they come up with that. If you go to the clinical practice guideline, I'll tell you two things that might be useful. One is the, the research that supported it, so you feel secure about that. And the other thing is the implementation considerations. So, you know, the recommendation says do this, but the big document, the implementation considerations will say, well, this is how you do it. This is how you do it in PEDS versus, uh, you know, an older population versus a critical care versus an OR. Is it true? I tend to hear that uh, attorneys tend to get their hands on the big manual that they actually purchase it to have it on hand. Is that true? That's true. And we are selling quite a few of the 2014 guidelines because that was sort of the advice that was current on cases that are going to trial now. We hope people are adopting the new one. The thing we need to remember is that These are recommendations. They're not standards. They're not mandates. And what you should do is use it as advice, but always look at that patient in the bed and what's right for them. And if you have a justification, this recommendation really wasn't right for this person, document it. You know, the attorney shouldn't come in with the big book, slap it on the stand, and say, well, why didn't you do this, this, and this? You know, you're free to say, that's a recommendation. I know my patient. And that wasn't appropriate for them. Okay, that's very good advice. Yeah. We never intended it to be a legally enforceable standard. We intended it to be an evidence-based recommendation, guidance, bringing more knowledge to the bedside, but letting the clinician decide what's really best for my patient. Right, right. Individualize their plan of care. Right. Well, that's very good to know, um, and I'm sure our listeners, that kind of clarifies, you know, the, well, the importance of having these guidelines in hand to make sure, you know, we're improving, you know, our patients' outcomes and being well-versed with evidence-based practice as well. Yeah. We want more knowledge to, to do the best by our patients, but it's not a mandate. So what would you take away from this? What would you advise nurses or nursing administrators in regard to this new guideline? I'd advise them to download the quick reference guide for free, kind of look through and do a mental check. Are we doing this or not? 
and investigate the areas where maybe you could make some improvements. I think probably the administrators, your education directors, your unit managers might do, want to do some crosswalking with how to implement and the evidence behind it in the, in the big book. But I think you should start with the free download of the quick reference guide. It can help update policies that they may have in right. place. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Cuttingen. Um, before we close, I also wanted to be sure to mention you'll be presenting here in Nebraska on April 17th, 2020, right? 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 At our conference, yes. Yes, it's very exciting with um, the Nebraska WOCN. Will you be talking more about the details of this new guideline then? Right. We'll be talking more about the details and we hope to have some implementation tools and some cheat sheets and a little bit more guidance so people can more readily implement the guidelines. Oh, great. I look forward to that. Well, uh, thank you for your time and thank, thank you, you for your dedication um, thank you. My to this huge initiative and happy Worldwide Pressure Injury Prevention Day. Right. <laughs> well, that was a very intriguing discussion. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of changes in pressure injury identification, staging and prevention documentation over the past few years. And we're just so fortunate to have the national and international experts right here in the College of Nursing. And I'm so glad that we could share this information with you. You know, here at RN Huddle, we are really interested in learning about the issues that you're facing as nurses and in bringing a new and informative information to you. So feel free to reach out if you have an idea or you have a guest that you'd like to see on the broadcast. Until then, this is Heidi Keeler coming to you live from Omaha, Nebraska at RN Huddle. Talk to you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.